0: This is CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Senator Michael Bennett is now officially a presidential candidate. When he announced Thursday morning on network TV, he had stinging words, and not just about Donald Trump, but also about his own Democratic Party, which he said doesn't stand for much at the national level. Bennett spoke with me this weekend on the CU Denver campus. Senator, welcome. Thank you. When you announced on CBS, you said one reason you're running is to restore integrity to government, a concern for you that precedes the election of Donald Trump. It's a lofty goal, some might even say vague. Why are you the man to do it?
1: Well, I've always tried to approach my work with integrity, whether it was in the private sector or in the Denver Public Schools as superintendent or in the Senate. And when I have found ways, To agree with people on the other side of the aisle, I have looked for opportunities to actually drive legislation forward on behalf of the American people. What I think people are really sick of is a world where people seem to run for office to create controversy, to raise money so they can create controversy, so they can raise money, so they can get elected again. That is... And that's led to a politics where people come home to their constituents and say, yeah, I didn't get anything done, but I'm blaming the other side for the failure. I think enough of that. I've watched that for 10 years in the U.S. Senate, and I've come to the conclusion that if we do that again for another 10 years, I'm going to be part of the first generation of Americans to leave less opportunity, not more to the people coming after us. And I just can't stand thinking that we're going to end up there.
0: And when we talk about integrity like that, Ted Cruz said your campaign is like a Seinfeld episode about nothing, and you responded calling him Newman after one of that show's characters. Where does a Twitter beef with Ted Cruz fit into integrity?
1: Hello, Newman. I didn't start it. He started it. He put a tweet out saying that I had done nothing in the Senate uh, and that uh, except yell at him on the Senate floor. Uh, some of the people that have supported me sent him uh, a bunch of front-page magazine articles that called me the can-do senator in a can't-do Senate. I don't think he knows my record at all and I think it reflects on the lack of progress he's made in the Senate. But it doesn't have anything to do with integrity, it has to do with pushing back on a guy that I think has been at the bottom of a huge number of problems before Donald Trump got there. You know, Think about the 2013 shutdown that Ted Cruz led while Colorado was being flooded. That was just one example of many examples that he has used the floor of the Senate as his own personal way of advancing his political career. Instead of doing the hard work that we need people to do, so when he attacks me, I'll push back on him.
0: And this question makes it's a little like-
1: different from him because when you know you got a president who said that his father was uh, uh, engaged in the assassination of JFK, he made comments about his daughter or his wife, and he still endorsed him for president. Why? Because he wanted the judges that Donald Trump uh, would. Would point.
0: And I've got a question for you. I'm not
1: running against Ted Cruz. So.
0: <laughs> that might sound a little bit snotty, but I ask it because you've talked with voters in early primary states, Iowa, New Hampshire, and besides Michael Bennett, who else wants you in this race?
1: I don't know. It seems like there are a lot of people that are interested in my candidacy uh, in Colorado and across the country. Obviously, I'm not as well known as the other candidates. I haven't spent my time in the senate, you know, on cable tv and i haven't spent the time creating a brand that's a national brand. i recognize that. i mean, those are issues that i'm going to have to get through. but i do think my record of working in the senate and my record before that trying to deliver for the kids in the Denver public schools and in business is going to be an unusual record and i think it will appeal to democratic primary voters.
0: and you're touting your ability to work across the aisle I think of the Gang of Eight, a bipartisan group of senators who worked together on immigration reform in 2013. But in the CBS interview, you also said that there is no bipartisanship occurring today in Washington. Are you a man out of place in politics today?
1: I, uh, yes, in that sense, because I think there are a lot more people that are interested in the partisan battles. But what I see degrading before my very eyes are the institutions that the next generation of Americans are going to have to rely on to resolve their differences. And they're, by the way, the same institutions that 230 years of Americans have relied on to, to resolve their differences, move the country forward, and solve even bigger problems than the ones we're confronting today. I don't, I think it is cynical, and by the way, unnecessary for us to believe that the kind of empty partisanship that prevails today uh, needs to be with us forever. In fact, I, As I said earlier, I think that if it's with us for another 10 years, it's going to be disgraceful what's going to happen. And there's and I don't look Colorado is a state that's third Republican, a third Democratic and a third independent. That's one of the great joys for me of of representing a state like that. That's complex politically, but where the majority of people actually want the same things for their families, for their businesses, for their communities. The partisanship in Washington, the lack of pluralism in Washington is antithetical to what the American people want. And it is the result of a bunch of special interests, a bunch of self-interested politicians and billionaires being able to corrupt our campaign finance system. That stuff, if we get it out of the way, then we can start to act on the the priorities. And I think in large part, they're consensus priorities of the American people.
0: But you actually mentioned that you are Less well-known, in the website five thirty eight wrote a story citing Monmouth College poll from March. Nearly half of Democrats responding said that they had never heard of you, and only 20% were able to form an opinion on you. How do you raise the money to change that? Sort of the chicken-and-the-egg proposition, especially with the 20 other candidates fundraising, well, too. Well, first
1: of all, that's what campaigns are for. And as I said to you, I know I'm not the best-known candidate. I also know that over 50% of Democratic voters say that they've not picked their choice. The field is wide open. In 1993, at this point, Joe Lieberman was the leading candidate for the Democratic Party. When Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were running, I think Barack Obama was 30 points behind Hillary Clinton at this time uh, in the campaign. So we've got, um, we've got a lot of time to be able to make the case, and we've got a lot of ground to make up. I mean, uh, and anybody that would like to help me do that, I'd be very grateful for their help or their contributions.
0: But how do you go about making up that ground with the primary debates for Democrats about a month and a half away? What are you doing to get on that stage? Yeah,
1: so this afternoon, after I'm finished at Colorado History Day, where I've been watching my daughter compete, I'm going get to get on a plane with my wife and daughters and fly to Iowa and spend two days there, then go back to Washington. Next, next week, I'll come back to Colorado, and then head out to New Hampshire. So Um, We're not going to let any. We got no time to waste. That's for sure. And uh, and we're going to work really hard to make sure we make that debate
0: stage. On Wednesday, Attorney General William Barr testified before the Senate on the Mueller report. Looking into the Russian interference in the 2016 election, Barr was a no-show in the democratically controlled House. Having digested the report and Wednesday's testimony, where do you stand with regards to initiating impeachment proceedings against President Trump?
1: Well, first let me say about the Attorney General. I think he should resign. I think his his behavior has been disgraceful. It's clear that he lied about the contents of the Mueller report. Mueller himself has said that. And for him to basically be acting as the President's criminal defense lawyer instead of acting as Attorney General of the United States is something that uh, the American people shouldn't have to put up with and nobody should have to put up with. On the present, we've got a process that's got to be run in the, in the House of Representatives, in the Senate. You know. Only when the House impeaches do we then um, have the uh, the chance to have a trial and decide whether to convict the president. He has done things that, are cl- that look at least on the face of them like, like they were obstruction of justice, and those are certainly impeachable offenses, but we have to let the process work its way through.
0: This happens to be the first time that we've chatted with you since your surgery for prostate cancer, and I understand that you're cancer-free, what sort of perspective did the experience give you?
1: It was, thank you for raising it. Um, it. First, it makes me feel like the luckiest person in the world. I mean, nobody likes getting a diagnosis of cancer. It's a, it's a scary thing. Uh, but from the time I was diagnosed until I had the operation and was, was told that I was cancer-free, was only five weeks. So one perspective I have is how lucky I am and how... Um, how much I admire people who have to struggle with the disease much longer than I uh, had to do it. The second thing is it has made me feel even more strongly that we need universal health care coverage in this country. I have always believed that. I've championed that. But now I really understand why it's so critical. I had no symptoms at all. If I had not had a primary care doctor do a screening and take a test, I would be sitting here talking to you with cancer in my body and not knowing it and on my way to being very sick and probably dying. And there are a lot of people in this country, unlike any other industrialized country in the world, there are a lot of people that do not have insurance, do not have primary care. And the idea that we've had a president in Donald Trump who promised after he was repealing the Affordable Care Act, that he was going to give us really cheap health care, that we were all going to love it, that it was going to be so much better and everybody was going to be covered. Not only has he not done that, he has spent his time in office trying to fight to take away health insurance and health care from millions of Americans. He succeeded at it. He's made it harder for people with pre-existing conditions. And that is insane that we have somebody in the Oval Office that's trying to do that. We, you know, when you look at the Democrats in this race, we have disagreements about health care. But every single one of us wants universal coverage. Every single one of us wants to reduce prices for families and for the country. And every single one of us wants to maintain quality. His position and the Republicans who support him is exactly the opposite of that, which, by the way, is not the position of Republicans in the state of Colorado. I suspect not in Iowa or New Hampshire either.
0: And we're actually sitting in the CU Denver campus for National History Day Colorado. Your daughter is competing, and you've been involved with this for 10 years And, you know, people could be talking about you a decade from now. What do you hope that they'll say?
1: I hope that they would say that I helped us lead lead our way back from a dark period in our American political life. There was a period that was um, uh, unprecedented and that I helped us restore our basic uh, democratic values in this country and that it wasn't the person in 1600... Pennsylvania Avenue that made the biggest difference, but it was the American people themselves rising up as citizens to say, we believe in the rule of law. We believe in the right of people to participate in this this democracy. We believe in self-government. We believe in being a symbol to the rest of the world of how you can solve your pluralistic differences without, without violence or even without political violence, without screaming at one another, but for the benefit of the next generation of Americans and for the benefit of democracy Democracy's role in the world. That's what I think all of us need to be part of, whether we're running for president or whether we're a student at History Day uh, competing. That's what it's all about. These enduring values that we have, that we have never been perfect, we have failed over and over again, but for 230 years, those are the values that we have built our country on to make it more democratic, more fair, and more free uh, with every passing year. We're at a moment when we have a president who doesn't know as much about our history as the kids competing in Colorado History Day, which is why every day he gets up in the morning to do violence to those values. We need to restore those values if we have any chance of building for the future.
0: And before we go, I want your best policy idea, and I'm thinking specifically what's going to set you apart from the plethora of other Democrats in the race. I'll give
1: you two. Uh, one is, I'll give you two briefly. One is Medicare X, which is a true public option that would allow people all over America to choose a public option for health care that's administered by Medicare. I think it's a better option than, uh, than, than Medicare for all for reasons I won't get into today, but I think it achieves the same goal at a much lower price, uh, and And is politically much more doable because it doesn 't take away insurance from anybody who wants to keep it by the way that 's another perspective I had coming th- through this operation for myself and a week after I had my operation, my 14 year old who 's competing in history day today had her appendix out. That makes you think a lot about. How who you want making choices over your health care. The second thing I'd say is um, my plan uh, called the American Family Act that uh, dramatically increases the child tax credit, which would be a huge benefit to middle-class families It would reduce childhood poverty in this country by 40, almost 40%. It costs only 3% of what Medicare for all costs, and it's much less expensive than Donald Trump's tax cut for the wealthy. The idea that we could do something like that and give middle-class families a better chance of affording housing, health care, higher education, and early childhood education, and lift 40% of the kids in this country who are in poverty out of poverty – That's the kind of thing we could do if we had a political system that actually functioned. And it's the kind of opportunity cost that we face when we have one that doesn't function, week after week after week. Think about this. Since 2001, We spent $5 trillion in tax cuts for wealth, largely for wealthy people in America, at a time when we have got massive income inequality. We spent $5.6 trillion over the same period in the Middle East. That is almost $12 trillion. We could have used that money to fix our roads and bridges, to fix the electrical grid. To clear up every backlog we have, which are massive for, uh, at airports, uh, we could have restored Social Security to, 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 and we could have uh, given every teacher in, in America 50% pay raises we want, uh, if we wanted. It is a, an example of the distorted priorities that exist at the national level in our government and it's what we have to fix.
0: Senator, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having
1: me. I appreciate it.
0: Colorado Senator and Democratic presidential candidate Michael Bennett speaking with me this weekend on the University of Colorado Denver campus. Colorado now has two candidates for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination, which, if you are to believe some of the recent polling numbers, may not mean very much outside the state. But polls don't always reflect reality. So to get a better sense of the prospects for U.S. Senator Michael Bennett and former Governor John Hickenlooper, we turn to Seth Maskett. He directs the Center of American Politics at DU. Seth, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: We just heard from Bennett about his dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party. Do you think that that will resonate with primary voters? Um, Possibly.
2: I I think there is a a certain set of them who are not entirely happy with the the state of politics in general, with where the Democratic Party is and where the Republican Party is. And I think his uh, his appeal as sort of a, a pragmatist, someone who has a record of um, making some achievements. I, I think that, you know, there, there is a, a segment of the, of the party that, uh, that that will appeal to.
0: And what else stood out to you at his comments in general?
2: One of the things that really stood out to me was, and I, I appreciated you asking him about the, his, his kind of snit with Ted Cruz. Um, that I mean, that's a fun question and it's a fun comment. But um, <laughs> the fact that he pointed that out as something that predates Donald Trump. As a problem with the Republican Party, Um, one of the things sort of the the poll leader right now uh, would be Joe Biden on the Democratic side. And one of the things that Biden has been saying is that once we get rid of Trump, then the Republican Party and the Democratic Party can go back to politics as normal. And I think what Bennett is trying to say here is that, no, this is a deeper issue. Um, That there's a there's a systemic problem. There's sort of an antagonism to uh, to competent governing that we see long before uh, the existence or long before Donald Trump expressed interest in running for president. And so I think there's a there's a segment of the Democratic Party that that really resonates with.
0: It's interesting long term perspective. Let's talk about polling. We know that it's very early, but a recent CNN poll shows that former Governor Hickenlooper at zero percent among respondents when they asked who they'd vote for. And similarly, recent Monmouth College polls said almost half of Democrats hadn't even heard of Bennett. Do numbers like that mean that neither man should be in the race?
2: Uh, I mean, that's hard to say. With It's such a crowded field. And there are you know, it's still relatively early. We're still about 10 months away from anyone actually casting a vote. So the fact that uh, caucus goers and primary voters haven't necessarily heard of Hickenlooper or Bennett or many other candidates at this point doesn't necessarily mean that they won't get any support. Um, one of the things I've been working on in, in some of my research is uh, asking party activists, people who've been involved with uh, several election cycles and, and tend to pay pretty close attention to politics and actually get to meet with the candidates and attend their events and uh, try and get a sense of what they're thinking because you know, they would have had more exposure to, uh, to this than most of the voters. Bennett and Hickenlooper aren't necessarily doing extremely well with that crowd either, but they're, they're not at zero. Um, it's more like, a, you know, a handful of people have expressed interest. They said they would consider them. They're, they're simply keeping their options open at this point.
0: And like you said, the, it's a crowded field. So there's this ongoing question of differentiation, and clearly Bennett and Hickenlooper are friends and former co-workers. Does the idea that they're close and from the same place almost make them an easy target for other candidates in a way to kill two birds with one stone?
2: Um, I mean, I guess what makes them both interesting and relevant is also what makes them uh, both easy to dismiss. I mean, the fact that they are both uh, relatively moderate Democrats from Colorado, um, that they both uh, have won in particularly in 2010. uh, Both of them won elections statewide that year in years that weren't very good for Democrats nationally. Um, So that's something that they can both claim uh, and both point to as as an accomplishment. They both have, uh, you know, records of accomplishment while in office. But one can also say, well, you know, they don't carry they could maybe carry their own state, but that doesn't necessarily carry that many electoral votes. Most Democrats would probably carry the state of Colorado at this point. Um, So, yeah, what's uh, what's good for one can also be uh, bad for the other.
0: And we hear about former Vice President Joe Biden raising large amounts of money in a very short period of time or South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg talking, taking the nation by storm. But has anyone else in the Democratic field really emerged as a favorite?
2: Um, it depends how you're looking at it. Um, so if we're looking at polling, well, that will tell us something. And uh, the fact that that Biden is doing very well in, in uh, some of this early polling is useful information. Um, But it doesn't necessarily tell us what the the race is going to look like a few months from now, no less how it will look uh, just before the Iowa caucus or uh, the New Hampshire primary. Um, Some of these activist interviews that I've been doing suggest that uh, a lot of people are considering candidates like Cory Booker or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris. Um, even if they're not necessarily doing really well in the polls just yet. Um, And Bernie Sanders has a lot of enthusiastic supporters behind him, even if um, there are also a lot of activists who have some concerns about him. Um, If you look at uh, who people are endorsing, um, that's another way of looking at it that tends to be a pretty good predictor of how these races go. Um, Kamala Harris has been doing pretty well in that, but uh, Joe Biden has recently moved ahead in that. So there's a lot of different indicators. Um, Money is useful uh, as an indicator. Um, It gives us an idea of where some of the enthusiasm is, uh, who has access to a good number of donors. But again, it doesn't necessarily tell us a lot in the long run. Um, One of the things that's kind of interesting is to see um, how many people who also donate to the Democratic Party. Um, are also giving to some of these candidates. That can actually be a pretty good predictor of, of who ends up with the bulk of party support. So there's a lot of
0: different measures to be watching. It is interesting that both Bennett and Hickenlooper are touting their experience with working across the aisle, being bipartisan. But one thing that Bennett said is that bipartisanship no longer exists in D.C. In your studies, do you get any sense that voters are longing for bipartisanship or that there's any change from the current political atmosphere in the offing?
2: I mean, a lot of the folks I've been talking to, the Democratic activists, people who tend to are really passionate about their party and have been working for their party for a lot of years, um, bipartisanship isn't necessarily their number one priority. Um, They're interested in their party standing up for what they see as democratic values, um, for not capitulating uh, to the other party. And so they want to see in some ways a, a presidential nominee who can do that sort of thing.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Seth Mascot directs the Center of American Politics and University of Denver. He's contributing writer to 538 and this is Colorado Matters CPR News.
3: I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR news. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters,
2: experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committees.
4: Just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed?
3: Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill, in today for Ryan Warner. The wildfire last November in Paradise, California was one of the worst in the state's history. At least 86 people died, and much of the community was destroyed. Does Colorado have a paradise waiting to happen? NPR's Kirk Sigler has been exploring this question, and it took him to Basalt, Colorado. Kirk, welcome to the
3: show. Good morning. Glad to be here.
0: What's unique about Basalt?
3: Um, Well, actually, the simple answer is that it's not unique, um, but it did have a very close call. As many of your listeners probably recall, um, uh, last July 4th, a wildfire exploded there and uh, raced toward the town and... Just due to a shift in the wind at the last minute, uh, basically, in the fire chief's words, uh, spared the town. Um, So it's not unique in the sense that it is a community that is built in and around uh, very uh, high-risk, high-fire-risk forests. And there are a lot of them in Colorado. There are a lot of them here in California, where I'm talking to you two uh, from, and uh, all over the West— You know, it's a situation where the forests are um, overgrown uh, and the climate is getting more erratic and hot and longer. And so basalt is sort of sitting right in the midst of it. It's a good place to look at, though, because, as you mentioned, there are a a lot of places now that are uh, looking at what's happened here in California lately, in particular with the Paradise Wildfire, and worried that they could be next. And basalt had a very close call, as I mentioned.
0: So Basalt is kind of representative of a lot of communities. Basalt and a lot of other places in Colorado keep expanding into these high-risk forest areas. Here's Basalt's fire chief, Scott Thompson.
5: People move to Colorado, buy a home, mini ranch, whatever it may be, but they want views of the mountains, they want their mountain home, and they don't want to see their neighbors.
0: People have been attracted to homes in the mountains for a long time. Why is there more risk now?
3: Well, there's a, a number of factors going on. and It was interesting touring around with uh, Scott there. Um, frankly, you know, it was sort of stressful, especially after being in paradise and seeing, you know, a level of destruction that we hadn't seen in modern times from a wildfire. And he's driving me around uh, the hills there uh, that are just dotted with much more expensive homes, quite frankly, than in paradise, which is kind of a separate issue. But um, there are convergence of factors. Uh, the forests... Um, we've allowed fire to burn, or I'm sorry, we've allowed fire to uh, not uh, take its natural course in forests for about 100 years. We've been suppressing wildfires. Uh, We've had historic drought as a result of climate change. The fuel load buildup is so high. And yet, more and more people want to move to places like the Roaring Fork Valley, because it's a great place to live. And it's out in the country. And people don't, you know, people move there for certain reasons. And of course, we know that uh, the middle class has expanded, and people have more wealth, and it's easier to move out to places like basalt, and they're doing it in, in droves. Um, and this has been going on really since uh, the early 90s. Uh, and the amount of land that has not been built out or has not seen development, there's actually quite a bit of it. So uh, the thinking in the fire world is that there is time to uh, maybe rethink this before we've completely built out what's known as the wildland urban interface. But basalt is, is, is in the the wildland urban interface. That's the place where the homes and the infrastructure and the towns are built right up into the forests, and they're expanding into the forests.
0: In terms of vulnerability, how does Colorado compare to other states?
3: Colorado is, is toward the top in the West. Uh, and when it comes to development in the WUI, the wildland urban interface, uh, California per capita, of course has the most because there are 40 million people here and millions of people living in, uh, high fire risk areas or (laughs) high risk areas in general, uh, especially in California, but Colorado and, uh, Washington state are in, you know, close second and third in terms of development, uh, according to recent analyses, uh, of development in, uh, high-risk zones. And you know Colorado a few years ago had uh, the national spotlight was on Colorado and now it's kind of shifted to California because the fire situation out here seems to have gotten uh, worse in recent years but uh, just a couple years ago in Colorado Springs two destructive fires um, and, and deadly wildfires burning into whole cities you know this is not a this is not a situation of um, you know fires burning vacation cabins like when I was a kid growing up in the west you'd 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 see four Forest fires Well these are these are urban fires. These are fires that are burning into whole cities that have been built out into the woods and the cities themselves and the infrastructure themselves become the fuel uh, for the fires. So Colorado uh, uh, you just have to look at the front range of Colorado to look at the amount of development and assets that have been built out into these forests that are um, in general uh, this winter notwithstanding, uh, extremely dry and overgrown.
0: So lots of mo- people moving into these high-risk areas. Scott Thompson, the fire chief in the Basalt area, says his department has very little control over what people do with their land.
5: They buy a piece of property, and if they come to the counties, cities, um, fire districts, and we say that it's not a good place to build because of the um, high fire risk, um, we can't stop them from building um, because that's essentially taking their property.
0: Chief Thompson also says he's amazed how often those same people do obvious things that put their properties at risk.
5: I can't tell you how many times we go to homes during a wildfire and there's firewood stacked against the house, there's decks with cushions and different things that'll catch all those ember showers and start the houses on fire.
0: This despite the fact that Chief Thompson said they hold public forums to inform people about how to lessen those risks. Thompson says he thinks that the only thing that would help would be aggressive building codes. Based on your reporting, how likely do you think that is to happen?
3: Well, in uh, California, for instance, in 2008, uh, there was what's billed as a landmark uh, statewide code that affects new builds. Now, that's the key, new building, uh, a large amount of, I know we've been talking about new development in the wild and urban interface, but there are a lot of homes that have been there for decades, especially if, as we're seeing fires come into whole cities and towns. Um, I think the key is probably to have a statewide building code. In Colorado, there are a few places that have implemented their own, but it's very piecemeal. One place that comes to mind is Boulder County. Um, but there's going to be a lot more focus on in the coming uh, months, even, um, different things that we can do to homes and the existing homes that are in these places uh, and and whether or not new things should be required. You know, I've, it's not just on the homeowner, though. It's also on the the town planners, the county commissioners who are approving this development. You know, I was traveling, traveling around Basalt with uh, the chief uh, Thompson there, and he pointed out, you know, some developments from the 90s, uh, so pretty recent, that were required to have a, a number of trees in front of the homes, because the thinking back then was, well, we don't want these homes to be in our viewshed. Uh, there are also homeowner associations in Colorado, in the Roaring Fork Valley in particular, that still require uh, a certain amount of trees and brush and foliage to be in places. Uh, <laughs> that, that sounds kind of counterintuitive now after we've seen what wildfires can do to property of late. But these are all things that I think, you know, Chief Thompson was telling me that um, there are places that have done... Uh, and he's been in the wildland fire world for uh, decades, there are places that have done uh, a lot of good things, but it's really on a piecemeal, and it tends to be in places that have seen What fires can do? Boulder County, uh, also uh, a couple places I've visited in Washington State. Uh, But I think it's possible that these other states will start looking at a policy like California. But California has a lot of holes as well. Like I mentioned, it just affects new construction, and there's a lot of homes out here, as we saw in Paradise in particular, that uh, that are you know outdated and and don't have the proper venting. May still have wood shingles and all these things that can catch a fire. As that you heard the. saying it can catch the home on fire right down into the very individual things that are happening right on the deck uh, with the uh, pine needles and that were not swept off out of the gutters uh, all kinds of things right down into the micro
0: thank you so much kirk glad to be here that was npr's kirk sigler he's working on a reporting project about what needs to change when it comes to how places respond to wildfires and other disasters Providing health care can be challenging in rural areas like here in the West, especially when alcoholism and opioid addiction plague communities.
4: I don't know what's wrong with me, and I'm stupid or something. No, alcoholism, it's a disease. If it was easy to stop drinking, we wouldn't have people drinking until they die. I don't think you want to die, but your liver right now is real, real, real sick. And just doing this once a week could kill you. You mad at me? No. I'm not mad at you. I'll never get mad at you. That's not my job. My job is to try to keep you alive.
0: That was Chris Ruge, a nurse practitioner featured in The Providers, a new PBS independent lens documentary. The film follows three healthcare professionals in the area of northern New Mexico, where people struggle with poverty and substance abuse, as well as access to healthcare. Leslie Hayes is a family physician who is also featured in the documentary. She spoke on the phone from New Mexico with my colleague, Anthony Cotton.
6: Dr. Hayes, welcome to the program. Thank you. So the name of the documentary is The Providers, which I thought was pretty apropos given the nature of your work, but what does the idea of providing for your community mean to you?
7: Um, It means that I'm there when people need me more than anything else. I'm there to provide the best medical care that I can. Uh, It means providing them with information about their conditions, uh, providing them with diagnoses, providing them with medications to help treat their condition, providing them with comfort when I can.
6: It's more than just medicine, it seems.
7: It is. Medicine is always more than just medicine.
6: What do you mean by that?
7: I mean, I think people think of us as like providing diagnoses and operating and and giving medications, but medicine always involves sort of the comfort and the time and the
6: relationships and getting to know people. You were raised in Los Alamos, New Mexico, which I understand has the highest rate of PhDs in the U.S. But the documentary takes place in a very wide swath of northern New Mexico, and it kind of paints a a pretty bleak picture of life there. But that's where you wanted to establish your practice. What went into that decision?
7: So first off, I'm going to say there are things in northern New Mexico that Are frustrating. I wouldn't use the word bleak though. There's so much strength here in terms of family and compassion and other things. But I wanted to be somewhere where doctors were really needed. There is a significant shortage of physicians in Española and I felt like I could really make a difference if I came to Española. Have you? I hope so. I can definitely point to individual patients where I feel like I have helped these patients. I feel good about these particular patient interactions.
6: The camera crews were with you, I understand, basically over a 3-year period filming you and a couple of other healthcare professionals. What was that experience like for you?
7: It was interesting. Um it was not at all what I expected. They would come in and most of the time they would just be filming an interaction. And you got to the point where you didn't pay too much attention to them. What I found weird was every now and then they'd make me repeat things. They're like, oh, we didn't get the angle we wanted on this. Can you listen to the baby's heartbeat again? Or can you ask that question again? Or explain that one more time? And that felt a little awkward sometimes. One of the scenes that did not make it into the movie, every year a friend and I do a pilgrimage to Chimayo, which has a chapel. Uh, It's a place in northern New Mexico on Good Friday. Everyone walks there. And this particular year, we left at 2 a.m. and walked 22 miles, and the film crew came with us, and they walked backwards the entire way carrying heavy cameras. And admittedly, they were switching off, so you know it wasn't one of them who walked backwards the entire 22 miles. But I was exhausted at the end of the day, and I can't imagine how they did it walking backwards.
6: How did the patients deal with it?
7: I think they kind of enjoyed it. Often, patients in rural poverty don't have anyone who wants to hear their stories, And I think for many of them, having someone who was interested in their story was kind of validating. It made people feel good about it.
6: You say that one of your passions is actually working with people who have issues with substance abuse. How did that come about for you?
7: Española for a long time has had one of the highest rates of um, opioid overdose in the country. And I actually think back to a patient I had when I first started who had... um, was using heroin, and she really wanted to stop. And she'd been in the hospital, and we'd arranged for her to get into treatment, but at that time there was a six-week waiting list to get into treatment. So I brought her into clinic frequently after she got out, and we kept checking to see where she was on the waiting list. But eventually it just got too much for her. She relapsed. Um, She was homeless. I couldn't find her. They called to tell me she had come up on the waiting list, but we had no way of contacting her, and so she lost her spot. She came back in to see me a couple months later. We got her back on the waiting list. And once again, she disappeared. And this went on repeatedly over about two years, at which point she just gave up and didn't come back in. After that, I saw in the paper that she had been arrested for drug possession. And eventually she got a suspended sentence if she would agree to go into treatment. And they got her into treatment right away. And I was so frustrated because we had tried so hard through the medical system to get her into treatment. And so when this medication, buprenorphine became available and they said you could use it to treat opioid use disorder in the outpatient world. I was like, oh, I want to try that. And so I took the training and it was just a miracle. These patients who just, there was nothing I'd been able to do for them up until that time. Suddenly I could get them in treatment and many of them did much, much better. It was like nothing I've ever seen in medicine. So much of what you do in family medicine, the outcomes are, you know, you're treating somebody's high blood pressure. And you're hopefully preventing a heart attack 20 years down the road. But with opioid use disorder, man, you get like instant gratification. You see them come in a month later, and they are just doing so much better.
6: Have things improved in the aftermath since the cameras have stopped rolling?
7: Um, they've improved a little bit. New Mexico's put an awful lot of effort into the opioid epidemic just because it was so bad here so early on. We've had needle exchange for a very long time. We've had Narcan distribution provided by the state for a very long time. Things have improved a little bit, but in the rest of the country, meanwhile, things are getting much worse. So we've actually dropped, I believe, number one to number 14 in
6: opioid deaths. And you talked about treating pregnant drug users. And you said that they're some of your favorite patients in a way. Why is that?
7: Yeah, it's interesting because for so many years, um, there's been so much stigma and judgment around women who use drugs during pregnancy. But what I found when I started offering a treatment is that these women really desperately want to get drug-free. I think people think that, you know, they just don't care about their babies, and that's not true at all. It's just that their addiction is just, So overwhelming for them, but if you offer them a treatment and a way out, these women will take it, and often they do very, very well. And the other thing is, if we don't identify them during pregnancy, what happens is that postpartum there's huge rates of relapse. If we're not offering treatment, we may not even realize that it's an issue during pregnancy because they're able to control their use enough that it doesn't ever show up. And then, but after they deliver, they relapse, and then you know all sorts of problems with the children growing up in his house where there are drugs or alcohol. So I find if you can treat women, first off, they do very well. It's certainly, I think, the easiest group to help because they are so motivated. They're much more motivated than any other group I work with. And then you can provide the support they need through the pregnancy, get them hooked in with the recovery community, and then after they deliver, they've got this really strong community around them to help keep them drug-free and hopefully be able to raise their children.
6: You also say that you hope to emulate some of the patients you've treated, people with far fewer resources than yourself.
7: So one of the things I found when I moved to Española was that there was just sort of such a positivity around children. People just embrace their children wholeheartedly, love them unconditionally in a way that I wasn't quite used to um, in other places i would lived. People hug their children readily and they bring their children with them everywhere. And I really liked that. And so I found that doing that with my children was a good parenting style for me. I was very happy with that. And in addition, I realized that things like the having the fancy clothes or the fancy gadgets wasn't as important because I saw plenty of people whose children didn't have any of that, but they were still being loved. And I realized that the time and the love was way more important than a lot of the
6: material things. I want to play you a clip from the documentary. This is Chris Ruge talking with his wife about the work that he does and the feelings that it engenders within him.
4: It's like watching someone stuck in quicksand and you're on dry land at a table with a margarita and and saying, God, that's really tragic. (laughs) You that to your patients. No, I know. How could you do more? By living with them? But you walk away. I don't know. Like if I knew in my heart of hearts that bringing my patient and her 13-year-old home for like a month would like totally put their life in another direction and totally change their reality forever, I think I'd argue for it.
6: How important is the idea of work-life balance and being able to to get away from it?
7: I think it's really important. And, I mean, certainly that's a the theme of the movie, especially for Chris, who I think struggles uh, with work-life balance a lot. One of my friends in medical school, her comment was, Jesus said the poor will always be with us. She said the sick will always be with us as well. And you do your best when you're working, and then try and let it go. And I realized at some point that even if I work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I'm never going to be able to meet the need.
6: At one point, the idea of retirement came up, and you said, who would take care of your patients? I mean, it almost feels, is there a guilt factor involved in this? Even, even the idea of getting away, whether it's for a day or, or for retiring?
7: Especially for a lot of female providers, there's definitely that, that we struggle with taking care of ourselves versus taking care of our family and taking care of our patients. Things have gotten better in my community as far as my big worry was that my patients with opioid use disorder, there was no one to take care of them. And we've actually got a lot, lot more providers now who can provide that care. So I feel really good about that. I'm not planning to retire anytime soon, but I am hopeful that there will be people to take over when I'm ready to retire
6: that you still wonder whether that will be the case.
7: We've gone up and down. I mean there are times now when we definitely do not have enough physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants to take care of the people
6: in the community.
7: And then there's times when it's better. So Yeah. It's rural New Mexico.
6: What does that mean?
7: It means that uh we don't always have the resources we'd like.
6: In 2016, you were named a White House Champion of Change for your work in the community. But I understand yeah. you didn't uh, quite get what the award was about. What what happened?
7: So my friend, um, Dr. Miriam Kamarami, had nominated me for this award. And she just said something about there was some award through the White House she was going to nominate me for. And I was like, well, that's nice. But it was kind of, to me, like she told me she was going to buy me a lottery ticket. And I didn't think anything further about it. And I must admit, when I got the email, I almost um, thought it was spam and just deleted it without looking at it. And she called me a couple days later, and she said, the folks from the White House called, and they said they want to give you the award, but you haven't responded to the email. And I was like, what? And I went and looked at my email, and I was like, oh, gosh. And so they were asking for more information. So I sent it into them, and then I didn't hear from them for another month, month and a half, and I figured I hadn't gotten it. But then they called one day and said that they wanted to give me this award, and it was very exciting. And I still don't know why I got it, because there are so many really great physicians across the country providing this kind of care. But it was very nice. I remember, you know, they talked about the work I do with pregnant women with substance use disorder, and one of my patients came in afterwards, and she had struggled with substance use disorder during her pregnancy and gotten on treatment and was doing quite well at that point. And she said, I realized they were giving you the award for taking care of people like me, and that made me feel really good. And that, that was my best moment around the award that made me very happy.
6: Well, Dr. Hayes, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you.
0: CPR's Anthony Cotton speaking with Leslie Hayes, a family physician in northern New Mexico. Hayes is featured in the PBS Independent Lens documentary, The Providers. It's a look at some of the challenges of supplying health care in rural parts of the West. Finally today, new music from the Denvers, The Copper Children. They formed a few years ago when guitarist Zaya Stallings booked a gig at the Gothic Theater but didn't have a band to back him up. Zaya turned to the buddies he'd been jamming with for some time, and The Copper Children officially formed. Their music is an unusual blend of soulful harmonies and psychedelic grooves, as you can hear in the song Don't Be So Shy, recorded recently in the CPR Performance Studio.
2: See, the thing is, I know
3: it's easy.
0: Don't be so shy from Denver's The Copper Children. Their new album is Speaking and Spirits is out now. Thank you for joining us. I'm Avery Lill, in for Ryan Warner today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.